Good morning, Rocky Peak. Great to see you. Happy Mother's Day. Hope you're having a great day and great, great plans. Um, my name is Michael. I'm one of the pastors, and I uh, just want to welcome you here today. We're going to go into our time of teaching in just a minute. It's great to be back from Israel. We had a fantastic uh, trip over there. A little crazy this time with weather. We had some major hail. We were down in the uh, wilderness of Zin, uh, like where Israel, uh, where Israel hung out, you know, when they're wandering the, in the desert. We were in a Bedouin tent when hail broke out, and it was the biggest hail I've ever been in, not heard of, but been in. It was like the size of marbles. It was kind of crazy because uh, when I came out, uh, we had to get to our lunch, and then, and then we had to get to the bus, and... Uh, you know, I had my, my jacket on, so, you know, it doesn't really hurt that much or whatever, but I was wearing, of course, my flip-flops, and uh, so I was running along like, ah, 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 and um, I found out later that on the coast in Tel Aviv, they had hail the size of golf balls that was breaking, uh, breaking headlights on cars, breaking windows in houses, and so uh, thankfully we weren't there. So uh, anyway, it's great to be back. I know a lot of you were following us on blogs and uh, on, on the blog and on the uh, videos and all. And so thanks for doing that. So it's great to, to have you uh, journeying along with us. So anyway, I want to welcome you uh, in. Welcome you in the Ridge as well. They're joining us now. And uh, we're going to go into our time of teaching. So inside the program is a green and white message note sheet. We use it every week and we'll definitely need that today. So why don't you take that out? And if you're ready to go, I'm ready to jump in. You ready to go? Okay, let's pray. God, we're just hungry for you. We're pursuing you. We're, we're hungry to pursue you, not just one-on-one, -on -one, but in this large group together as we come under your name, under your leadership, under the authority of your word, and in the power of your spirit. And so we pray, Lord, that we come now. I pray that you would speak through me. I pray my mind would be clear. Words would be strong. I pray most of all that you would give us ears to listen to what the spirit is saying, that we might listen and follow. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, our story starts today on a Wednesday, and uh, he's been anticipating this week for a long time. And uh, there's been many times when he's pondered this, kind of reflected on it, tried to mental model what it will be like. But um, honestly, now that he's here, it's, 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 uh, it's much different. It's much more real um, than just being in these familiar streets, uh, seeing what's happening in the city, that it's beginning to, to, to bring it to a head. And uh, there's many times he's wondered if there is a way to avoid this, there's a way to avoid the confrontation that he senses coming. Um, but uh, as he's here, he senses both intuitively and circumstantially that, that he doesn't think there's a way. Uh, and honestly, as the week goes on, the tension inside him is building. Um, there's times where he feels the fear. Um, there's times where he feels the dread. Uh, and yet, uh, he's, he's absolutely determined as he watches these storm clouds begin to form, and as he sees this perfect storm coming, he's absolutely determined to, to steer his ship into that storm and not run from it. But he also knows at some point that he's going to need to bring his colleagues in on this, because uh, if and when it hits, um, it, uh, it's going to impact all their lives, and he knows he's going to need to tell him soon, but it's not yet. Today's Wednesday, and it's not yet. Well, today we're continuing this series that we've been in now for the last six or seven weeks called Pursuing God. 
uh, one-on-one. And for those of you who are new, this is, this is how to pursue God uh, in our one-on-one time with him. It's just so, such an important part of being a follower of Jesus, of growing, experience transformation, and pursuing a deep and authentic relationship with God. And if you've been with us the last few weeks, you know that we've been in kind of a, a three-week mini-series over in, in the larger series about how to study and how to pursue God in his word one-on-one. So two weeks ago, uh, Dre talked with you about the authority of God's word, why we study God's word. Last week, he talked with you about interpretation, how we study God's word. And so we, we talked about these three steps that we talked about in the journal, if you're following along with that as well. These three steps of observation and then interpretation and then application. And as you pointed out last week, this is third and final step of application. That's the most important step. Everything leads up to this. Uh, he called it the crescendo. And uh, just a quick sidebar on this. You know, I was here last, you know, we'd gotten back from Israel, and I was here last Saturday night in the service, and uh, I was just so blessed by his teaching. And, uh, you know, every once in a while, every couple of years, I like to say this, because I know many of us here at Rocky Peak, we've, uh, we've come from other churches, other backgrounds, and so uh, oftentimes it's a fairly common paradigm in many churches that you have sort of one key teacher And they teach all the time. The only time they don't teach is when they're sick or when they're gone. And when they're gone, then you pull in the second string. The second string guy is usually like the youngest youth pastor um, because you want to make sure that that he's much worse than the regular guy (laughs) so that everyone knows who the real guy is, right? So then the real guy comes back. Everyone's like, we're so glad you're back. We know you had to go, but... Oh, thank God you're back. And so here at Rocky Peak, we have a completely different paradigm that we believe that a church is healthier when there's multiple teaching pastors. And so uh, I, I had to tell you, just sitting here last week, listening to Dre teach, so blessed, so clear, so profound. But what I love about it is the authority. You know, when I'm, when I'm listening to someone teach, uh, of course I want to hear that great presentation, good logic, good structure, good illustrations, good speaking, so all that. But more than anything else is what I want to hear is, does this person speak with authority? Do they speak with the authority of God in their life? Do they speak with the power of the Holy Spirit in their life? And that's what I'm hearing. That's what I heard last week. And I was just so thankful to be in a place I can be part of something like this. And the reason I, I mention is that, especially for some of you, that you remember Dre when he was like he was in third grade, right? <laughs> and now that he's in fourth grade, um, <laughs> well, he just looks like it, right? But you know, he, he, no, I, that wasn't a slam. What I mean, he looks so young, right? But he's actually, uh, you know, on the downs approaching 40, right? Yeah. But, you know, I remember when Jesus came into Nazareth and, and people took offense uh, and he said, you know, a prophet's never accepted in his own hometown. And I just wanted, I think sometimes when I, when I say things and draw a new paradigm, it just helps clear out the cobwebs. The first is a church that God has given us a very gifted teacher to share this teaching platform and be one of the kids. It reminds me of the church of Antioch where it says in the church of Antioch in, in Acts 13, there were uh, prophets and teachers and it was five, five people there. And so I just wanted to, to, just to say that because I think sometimes we, it takes us a while to catch on to a new paradigm if we're from, an old, if we're from an, a, another kind of place. So here at Rocky, we just believe that God will lead, make us a stronger church with multiple teachers. And I'm so thankful for Dre, and I just want to affirm that. Mm. 
Now, um, so anyway, so he did an awesome job talking about this three steps, right, of observation and interpretation. What does it mean for the original audience? And then application. What's the Spirit saying to us in our lives, taking that word? And so he was absolutely right of the money. It's his third and final step that's the most important step. And today we want to kind of delve deeper in that. And the way I want to get at it is to look at it through the eyes of Jesus and the way he lived his life. And so uh, what I want to do today is I, I want to start uh, by setting the stage by kind of revisiting what we often describe here as God's epic vision, not just for our lives, but for all of creation. And so for many of us familiar, we won't spend a lot of time, but this is going to set us up for where we're going. And so there in your note sheet, you have a, second, a section called Pursuing God, the Epic Vision. So if you're a regular here, you know this, that we often talk about that, that God has an epic vision for our lives. That when you came to Jesus, when you became a follower of Jesus, his vision for you was not simply that you would be forgiven and then wait to go to heaven when you die. That his vision is much bigger for you and all creation. That his vision, when a man or woman comes to Jesus, his vision for our lives is that we'd be forgiven and then we'd enter into this new, deep relationship with God. We were restored. The presence of God is restored in our life. And we entered this process of transformation by the, power, by the power of the Holy Spirit. We would be transformed and changed and become like Jesus so we can join him in his kingdom mission of bringing all creation under the leadership of its true king, healed and restored. That's the biblical vision. That's the epic vision. Now, the Bible describes that vision in many different places in many different ways. One of my favorite is in Romans chapter 8. And I want to take you there because this has set us up for where we're going today. It's on your note sheet. And so uh, it's a very famous passage. Some of you will recognize it. He said, Paul says, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, those who have been called according to his purpose, for who, those whom God foreknew. And there's kind of knew us before time began. This is part of the epic vision. He knew us before God began. He also what? predestined, so he knew us before time, and then he planned it in time, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And so in the context of Romans, in Romans 1 through 8, Paul is sharing what he calls his gospel, which is this epic vision uh, that goes all the way from creation of the, of the heavens and the earth to the new creations, the restoration of, uh, of, uh, that's coming at the end. And so he kind of lays out for eight chapters this epic vision. It starts with creation, and then the fall, and then redemption, and then restoration. And in chapter eight, he has just said, talking about the recreation of all things, right? So he just described that. And so it's in that context that he says, hey, this is what God's working for in your life. This is the epic vision. And he says that everything in your life is working for this purpose, that God is working in your life for ultimate good. So what is ultimate good? Is ultimate good a bigger car? Is ultimate good getting the right job? Is ultimate good uh, making lots of money? No, the ultimate good is that you would be restored to be the person you were created to be, conformed to the image of Jesus. Are you with it? And God is working in your life. When you come to Jesus, there's an epic vision for your life. He is restoring all creation. He chose you before time, not simply to come and be forgiven, but to be transformed, the image of God restored in your life, that you would become the person you were created to be, a person like Jesus. 
right? Now, the question then that raises is, well, like, well, what kind of person was Jesus? If this is the vision to be like Jesus, if that's our destiny, if that's the ultimate good that God is working all things together for, what is Jesus like? And so what I want to do today is I want to do a quick flyby through the Gospel of John, and I will look at five key passages that are windows into the soul of Jesus where he pulls the curtains back and says, let me tell you what makes me tick. And the reason we're doing this is because if God's vision is for us to be made like Jesus, then by understanding Jesus, we understand where we're headed, what his vision is for us. Does that make sense? And then once we get clear on that, then we can say, this is why we study the word one-on-one. This is what he's after. So we'll bring it all together. So there in your note sheet, you have a section that's called Pursuing God, the Passion of Jesus. So let's take some time talking about who Jesus was uh, by his own lips. Let's talk about his passion. And here's what I'm going to suggest today. I'd actually like you to write three phrases down. I, I use these all the time when I explain our vision statement here at Rocky Peak. Uh, but I think they're, they're powerful statements to understand the heart of Jesus. So if you were to boil it all down and say, what was Jesus' driving passion in his life? Here's how I would describe it. Number one is to know him. I'm talking about the Father, to know him. That's the first phrase. The second phrase is to love him. And the third phrase is to please him. Now, these three phrases build on each other because you can't love him unless you know him. And you can't please him unless you love him. So what I decided is that the driving passion of Jesus' life was to know his father, to love his father, and to please his father. Or if you want to put that in shorthand, Rocky Peak style, to listen and follow. All right? Now, um, and so what we're going to do is we're going to look at five passages very quickly. I'm going to set each one up in context, because as we've learned, when it comes to interpreting scripture, context is key, right? So uh, we're going to set each one just briefly. Uh, We're going to look at the statement of Jesus. For each one, I'll give you a key word to kind of summarize that concept, all right? We're going to to do a quick walkthrough, flyby through the life of Jesus. Number one, the first word is the word food. Always a great place to begin, (laughs) especially on Mother's Day. Uh, So we're going to start with the word food. So let's set it up. So the passage is John chapter 4. The scene is familiar to us. Jesus is is sitting at a well outside the the Samaritan city of Sychar. We've talked about this passage many times in the series. He's having this amazing conversation with a Samaritan woman who's been married five times, currently living with her boyfriend. And she... And and so uh, he's talking with her about living water and the only thing that can really satisfy the deepest thirst of your heart, right? So he's having this incredible conversation. He sent his men in to get some fast food. And so they come back. And when they come back, they got the falafel, they got the shawarma, they got the hummus. And there's like, okay, you know, so we're here. And so Jesus, we brought the food. We went somebody to eat. And he says, no, no, I'm not into food right now. And I want you to see what he says. He says, the disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And they're going to be confused, right? Like, do you have a private stash somewhere? Or like, (laughs) did like a food truck come by? Or like, like what is going on? So they say, so the disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? And, um, And so he says, my food, and think of what food is. Food is what fuels us. It's what energizes us. It empowers us. He said, my food. He said, you think I need food to run on? He said, my food 
is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. That's my passion. That's what fuels me. That's like gas in my tank. That's what I run on. I run on the will of God. I want to know him. I want to love him. I want to please him. I want to listen and follow. Okay, number one. Second word. Second uh, word is work. So think of it like your career or your work, you know. So uh, think of Jesus. He's growing up, right, as uh, as an apprentice. Uh, well, it's not really a carpenter. In the, in the Greek, it says a tecton, uh, like a stonemason. They don't really have wood in Israel. And uh, so, so he's, he grows up uh, as a craftsman, and he's growing up in his, his father's stepfather's, you know, and they're working in the shop or whatever. He's, he's, he's watching his father, learning how to do his work, right? That seems to be the analogy that's going on here. So here's a scene. The scene now is Jerusalem. Uh, the, Jesus is at the pools of Bethesda. We were just there a week ago Tuesday. So it's northwest corner of the city of Jerusalem, ancient city of Jerusalem uh, now, the old, and right inside the old, old city. Uh, for those of you there, it's a place by, uh, have been there, it's a place by St. Anne's where we sing in that church. And so we were, we were there, uh, so, so he's there. Now this is like a big, like a large area, it's sort of like a Roman bath. And what, what had happened was that there were some natural springs there and some subterranean springs. And so all the sick and lame would go there because there was a local legend that from time to time the waters would move because of the subterranean spring, but they didn't know that at the time. And when the waters would move, uh, they, the legend was that an angel was stirring the water and the first one in would get healed. And so everyone, you know, sick and lame would come there. They can't go to the temple. They're sick and lame. So they're going to be right there by the temple at the pools of Bethesda. And so uh, Jesus is, uh, uh, it's interesting too, because uh, there's actually, you know, archaeology has shown that there was actually like Roman gods there of healing. And so it's kind of, you know, a mixed, mixed bag. But anyway, so this guy's been there for 38 years. And imagine what's happened. You can't walk for 38 years. All the atrophy in your ligaments, your, your tendons, your muscles. And so he's been there for 38 years. And, okay, Jesus does this amazing heal. Ton of, ton of sick people. Those aren't on Jesus' agenda for the day. That's not his assignment. He just heals one of the many. And so this uh, amazing miracle, right? But when the religious leaders hear it, they're all upset because it happened to be the Sabbath. And in their mindset, that was working. It was okay to like save person from death on the Sabbath, but nothing else. And so uh, that was like, you know, opening your, you know, like a doctor working. And so they were very upset with him. And so they're asking him about this. And Jesus says, oh, wait a second. You think that I did this on my own? Like, you think it was my idea to come into the pools of Bethesda on the Sabbath in public? And heal someone and tell them to pick up their mat. You think that was my idea? And look what he says. He says, my father is always working. And this is going to tick him off because now he's calling God his father, which is worse than the first mistake. <laughs> but he says, my father is always at work to this day. And I too am working. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do what? Nothing, Nothing by himself. You think this was my idea? Like I just, uh, on my own. Just kind of went off the reservation. He said, he can do only what he sees his father doing. This is a picture to me of this little boy watching his father apprenticing. And he said, because whatever the father does, the son does. And he goes on to say, and the father's going to continue to show more amazing things. So as the father shows me, that's what I do. So what you see is that Jesus' work, his ministry, was really a reflection of just whatever the Father showed him to do. Again, his desire, listen and follow. Number three, 
The third word, let's write the word will, as in willpower, or you know, mind, will, emotions, that kind of thing. And so uh, this, this scene is in John chapter 6, the next chapter. And so Jesus has just fed the 5,000 the day before. People are seeking him out because they want more free food. And so, and they get there, he says, hey, don't seek for the food which perishes. You need to be seeking for the food which the Father will give you that endure to eternal life. And then he, and he begins to talk about how he's the bread of life who's come down from heaven. And so in that context, he says, I have come down from heaven not to do my own what? Uh, not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. Third time, we've seen the same basic statement, right? My agenda is not my agenda. I'm here to listen and follow. Fourth word. The fourth word is presence. One of the things that was kind of confusing to people about Jesus is all the religious leaders are always saying that he's off the reservation. He can't be of God. He's not honoring the Sabbath, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and yet he has this amazing power to do miracles like we just saw of healing this. And so how do you explain this presence and power of God in Jesus' life if he's off the reservation? And so in, in, uh, in John chapter 8, Jesus says, the one who sent me, of course his father, he's with me. He has not left me alone. Let's read this together. For I always do what pleases him. Are you seeing this? Are you following his theme? Right? His passion in life, please, to, to, to know, to love, to please, to listen and follow. And then number five, this happens in the last chapter of Jesus' public ministry. In John's gospel, chapters 1 to 12 are his ministry. Chapters 13 through 70 are his last night, like Passover, when he's arrested. So this chapter 12 is the last, uh, last public scene. He's in Jerusalem. And uh, he, he's kind of bringing his ministry to an end. And, of course, the religious leaders are always criticizing his teaching. He's making this stuff up. You haven't gone through the right schools. Who gave you the right? You don't have the authority, right? Kind of like Dre. And, um, and so John 12, he says, uh, Jesus says, I didn't speak on my own accord. And then he's at the end of his ministry. He's been teaching a lot. He says, I didn't speak on my own accord. But the Father who sent me, he commanded me what to say and how to say it. Are you picking this up? For Jesus, the passion of his life was to know, to love, and to please his, as his top priority. That was his, that was his food. That was his work. That was his will. That was his teaching. And that was the secret to the presence and power of God in his life. Now, the reason I take that time to paint that picture of Jesus is because if you get a clear picture of Jesus, you have a clear picture of our destiny. If you understand the passion of Jesus, you understand what you were created for. This is what God is after in your life. When you came to Jesus, the Holy Spirit begins working to create the same passion in you that was in Jesus. We are, God's vision is we be conformed to the image of his son. Now, here's the thing. We're going to see this passion in high relief, high definition, you know, 4K or whatever the next thing is. I know there's another thing. Because last time I said 4K, someone said, you're kind of behind. There's this other thing coming. It's like, okay. So I'm covering my bases. 4K or whatever else is coming. So in high relief, we're going to see, we're going to see, 
uh, this heart of Jesus in great clarity the last week of his life. So we're going to see it more than any other. So there in your note sheet, you have a section that's called Pursuing God, the Ultimate Test. And so uh, if you think of Jesus being in the school of obedience, this, his, his death, uh, giving his life for us, is going to be the ultimate test of Will he live out a life of pursuing God? Will he live out a life of knowing, loving, and pleasing as his top priority, even under the harshest circumstances and at the greatest price? If you think of him in the school of obedience, we'll see why I describe that. The question, will he follow, will he listen and follow when it costs him everything? And so what we see on the last week of Jesus' life, he comes into Jerusalem, and this is the story we started the day with. You may remember, I, just, I, I described this as a, this man has come into the city. He's pictured this week many times in the past. He's often pondered it in his heart. He's mental modeled it in his mind. But now that he's here, it's feeling so much more real and so much more uh, 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 you know, like, uh, difficult. Right? So he's beginning to feel like he's come in on He's come into uh, to Jerusalem on Sunday, Palm Sunday. He's come down the Mount of Olives, just about a 15-minute walk, come down there. Uh, remember, it's Passover week. So there are up to 500,000 pilgrims in the city from all over. The place is packed, overwhelmed. People are sleeping, camping out on the Mount of Olives. People are living in towns around. There's no way Jerusalem, normally much smaller, can take in 500,000 people. So the place is packed. So when he comes down the Mount of Olives on the donkey in fulfillment of prophecy, not everyone's going to see that. A few people are going to see that. Maybe thousands are going to see that. But most of the city is somewhere else, right? So he's coming down, and that's how the week starts. And then he begins to have conflict with the religious leaders. Now, he is still wondering, as we'll see, is there a way out? We're going to see this. He is still wondering, is there a way out? He's pretty sure, both intuitively, from the Holy Spirit and from the Scripture, and also circumstantially, the rising criticism with the, 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 the Jewish authorities, he's pretty sure there is not. But he's still wondering, as we'll see. And the, more, the closer it comes, it's like he can see the storm clouds coming, and he can see the perfect storm coming. Now, he knows that the religious leaders have already decided that they're going to take him out, but they're not going to do it this week. In their mind, they're not going to do this. They don't want to, they don't want to riot. Right? So there's 500,000 people here. Roma come in to crush it. They'll lose their power and authority. We can't have it this week. So it's not this week, but of course, it is going to be this week. And he knows that. It has to happen at Passover. He's the lamb, right? And so, but it's earlier in the week, and you get, a, you get a, just a brief window into the life of Jesus. Uh, I call it Wednesday in the story. It could have been Tuesday, or, but it's, 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 before, it's before the end. It's that last week. And uh, he hasn't told his disciples yet. Uh, he won't kind of bring them in, his colleagues in, until the Last Supper that this is going down tonight. He knows it's coming down, but he hasn't brought them in. But a very fascinating passage in John chapter 12. Now, remember what I said, John 1 to 12, public ministry of Jesus, his final public appearance in the Gospel of John is in John chapter 12. So if you look there in your note sheet, here's what Jesus says. So in the midst of John chapter 12, he says it's a public statement. He's out in the public, and he says, now my soul is what? Troubled. Troubled. Can you circle that word? Very important. We're going to come back. But he's telling us he's upset, uh, and that's an understatement, as we'll see. And what shall I say? In other words, I, he, he's feeling the tension. He can see this storm coming. He is feeling the tension. 
uh, he is beginning to feel the fear, and he, is, he says, how shall I respond? What shall I say? Shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? In other words, get me out of here. And he says, no, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Like he knows, that's why he's here. And so he says, here's my prayer, Father, glorify your name. So what we've seen all through, his passion is to please his father. He said, Father, this is my own quest. Use me to glorify your name, whatever the cost. And then God answers back. A voice from heaven said, I have glorified. I've already used you, and I will glorify it again. Now, here's the interesting thing. I, I want to talk about this word, um, this word here uh, that I had you uh, circle about um, being troubled. This is not a word we use a lot, right? It's like, it's not, uh, like, if, if I, if, I mean, it'd be very unusual for you and I to have a discussion, and you say, hey, how are you doing? I say, yeah, I'm kind of troubled. Like, you go, is that, that's like pastor talk. Does that mean you're upset, or like, what, is that? right? Like, we don't usually, we, we don't, it's not like we never use it, but we don't use it a lot, right? So I don't think it's a very good translation, because it doesn't communicate. The word in Greek is tarasso, right? Tarasso. Can we all say that? Tarasso, it's important. The word is tarasso. So in, if you look up like one of the best, you know, like Greek lexicon of the first century, uh, tarasso means to be stirred up. Uh, it can refer to weather, it can refer to people, but it means to be stirred up. It means to be disturbed. It means to be unsettled. It means to be thrown into confusion. To give you a sense of how extreme it can be, not always, but how extreme in the Gospels, Remember where uh, the, the disciples were out at the Sea of Galilee at night, and there's this huge storm, and they're scared to death, right? It's just like they think they're going to die. It's dark. Remember, there's no set lighting, right? Uh, it, it's dark. It's five-foot waves probably or more. It's just crazy. And all of a sudden, Jesus comes walking. Now, we often picture this as just like, like across the stage, like it's very calm. And he's just like, one, two. This is like up waves and down waves, right? And it's dark, and you see someone coming to you. What are you going to do? You are going to freak out, right? It's got to be like a ghost. They had no context for anything else. And so they did. They appropriately freaked out. In the Greek, the word is they tarasoed. The weekend Jesus was crucified, Sunday night, the disciples are scared to death. They're afraid they're next. They're hiding behind locked doors in an upper room. And all of a sudden, and behind locked doors, Jesus shows up. Once again, they, their only uh, frame of reference, it's a ghost. It's like a horror story. They freak out. They tarasso. It gives you a sense of the depth of that word. And if you... And so what we see is even earlier in the week, Jesus is feeling it. He's feeling the storm coming. His heart is churning. His stomach is churning. He's feeling the tightness in his chest. He is beginning into, it's finally here. He is determined to go forward, but he's feeling it. Now you're going to see this, of course, uh, uh, most of all in Gethsemane, right? So so uh, we're a day or two later now. They've had Passover, three or four hours. They've had lamb chomps. They've had four glasses of wine. Uh, so they're getting sleepy. Uh, Jesus is going to lead them out to the Garden of Gethsemane. When you hear garden, in Israel, garden is not like English garden. So like, it's like olive grove. So even today, when we go to Israel, we go to the Mount of Olives, right in that area, we go to an olive grove. 
Just we, we don't go like where the church is and all that. You know, just to go to an olive grove on the ground so we can feel what it was like. And so, uh, and so we, we were just there. And so they go to an olive grove. Now imagine this. The place is probably full of people, you know, that are, are pilgrims camping out. But he has a favorite spot, so he goes. And so when he gets there, it's about midnight. It's, uh, what, Passover time, so it's the spring. Jerusalem's 2,500 uh, 2, feet elevation, so it's cool. It's cold. It's going to be chilly. And they're going to go out. When they get there, Jesus stations most of his men at one location, but he takes Peter, James, and John, his inner three, with him closer. He doesn't want to be alone. He wants them to be with him. He wants experience. He wants their support. So they're going to go, and, and then, but, he's, but when he gets to the final station, he knows he needs to be alone. So Luke says he's going to leave them, and he's going to go a stone's throw away. So I don't know who's throwing the stone, but it's not, you know, but it's not that far, right? So you know, maybe it's here to the back of the auditorium or something like that, right? And, uh, and so they can hear all this. They can hear what's going on. And as we're going to see, they're going to hear it because he's very loud. Now, as we begin to picture this scene, I want you to kind of wipe out any visual art you've ever seen of this. <laughs> if you've ever seen the picture of Jesus on his knees, that is not what's going on here. One of the downsides of being familiar with the passage is we miss the obvious. So can we do a little observation here? Let's go back and see what it actually says. So what the gospel account tells us, he's going to go off and he's going to have three seasons of prayer. Now, this is not just like prayer number one, prayer number two. No, these are three seasons of prayer. And, and I think, I, I believe, I can't prove this, but I believe the reason he's praying three times is remember what he's praying. He's praying for a way out. Do you remember his prayer? If there's any other way, and remember what he said in one of the Gospels, God, with you, all things are possible. So even though he knows circumstantially, scripturally, uh, intuitively, there's probably no other way, he also knows his Father can do anything. And so is there any other way? And he's going to ask three times. Why does he ask three times? Because I don't think he got the answer the first two. If he got the answer the first two, he would have stopped asking. We've seen his heart to listen and follow. He was seeking his father three times because it took three times for him to discern that this was the way. And so as we picture this, again, you know, you often picture Jesus on his knees there and that little thing, the halo thing. Uh, no, no, no. How many have ever seen Kobe Bryant at the end of a... Uh, L.A. Laker championship game. Have you, seen, ever, have you seen Kobe Bryant? Okay? Okay, so about 14. That's great. Uh, it's the 11 o'clock service. It's too, too late to fix it for the next time. Uh, so, okay, so picture a man in a championship basketball game. Just imagine you've seen one who's been running up and down the court the whole season. This is game seven. It's all, if you've ever seen a basketball player, they are sweating bullets because it's hot and they are worn out and they've been running. Jesus is not in that circumstance. Jesus is in 40-degree weather, as we will see on his face. And he is sweating like that NBA player. 
I don't even know how that's possible. The tension, the battle inside him was so great, he felt like he was coming apart at the seams. As he will describe in his own words, he will describe it to his men, I am so sorrowful, my soul is so sorrowful, I feel like I'm going to die. As we go on, we're going to read that not only is he sweating bullets, laying face down, doing nothing, we're going to see he is crying out with loud cries and tears. From the stone's throw, they can hear him. They can hear him calling out. They can hear him begging. They can hear him bawling his eyes out, or whatever tears mean. We'll see that. You can interpret however you want, but... We'll see him, loud cries, tears, sweating. That's the biblical description. Jesus is wrestling with himself at a core level. All of us have two wills as followers of Jesus. We have kind of a surface will and a deeper will. Jesus' surface will is he does not want to go through this. It is terrifying. We don't know why it was that terrifying. Yes, it's the cross. Yes, it's crucifixion. Many men were crucified in that day without responding like this. Many theologians believe that what Jesus was so sorrowful for was so in anguish about what was freaking him out so much was not the physical pain of the cross, but the spiritual separation that he was about to go through from his father. Now, that's an interesting theory. There is nothing to back that up in Scripture other than theology. You put A and B, you get C, that kind of thing. There's nothing that ever says that. But it's very possible it's true. But something is shaking him at the core. And what we're going to see is Jesus is wrestling with himself to bring his will underneath his Father's will. And with that, I want us to look at this. In Matthew's account, and we'll fill it in with some of Luke, but... He takes Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, and he begins to be sorrowful and what? Troubled, Troubled right? Different word, but word for distress, anxiety. Remember Luke, Luke describes the sweating, his sweat was like, uh, was like blood. Uh, like we would say today, sweating bullets. And then he said to them, my soul catches his overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of what? Death. Yeah, death. And he said, stay here and keep watching. Going a, far, a little bit farther, he fell on his face to the ground. Let me ask you something, rhetorical question. Don't raise your hand. Have you ever been so upset, so distraught, so broken, so exhausted, so afraid, you have fallen on your face to the ground, literally? This is not like your two-year-old falling to the ground. This is a man who up to this point we've seen is fearless. He will confront his enemies. He'll call out religious leaders. He'll, he, will not, he will not flinch. I love the courage of Jesus. And here's a man that is so distraught, he cannot even stand up. And he said, Father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. And as we'll see in a second, that may not be a quiet voice. This may be loud cries and tears. 
He said, but not as, as I will, but as you. And so what we're seeing here is Jesus in the school of obedience, this final lesson, learning to surrender his will to his father's will. As, as one young woman said to me on the Israel trip, the Holy Spirit's been teaching me. Lately. It was funny because she said this, I loved it, and then I read it in John Calvin a week later. But she said, I'm learning that if I want to follow Jesus, there's times I have to disobey myself. Good. So if we jump now to the next passage in Hebrews, here's the, the, the writer of Hebrews, his take, his commentary on Gethsemane, what he knew about it. And of course, in the early church, they would have known about this, talked about this. So he gives us a little different uh, slant or not different, but additional information. And so it says, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions, here we go, with fervent cries and what? Tears. Tears, okay, so that's what I was talking about. To the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission, like the father heard him and answered him. But he says, son though he was, he learned what? Now, does that strike you as odd? Like, what are you saying? Jesus didn't know obedience? <laughs> like, this was a new thing for him? Like, yeah, he's always been so disobedient. He finally got the obedience thing down. We'll come back to that. Maybe I'll have Dre speak on that. Um, <laughs> and though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered and once made what? Perfect. Wait, what are you telling me? He was imperfect? We'll come back to that. From what he suffered, uh, he became perfect, and he became the source of eternal salvation for one type of person and one type of person only. It's interesting. He became the source of eternal salvation. He provides salvation for, for one kind of person. He, says, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Wow. This is why he died. He died to save us. What, who is us? People that want to come under his leadership and obey him as he obeyed the Father. He died to save people who obey him. Now, that may be messing with some of your theology a little bit. If so, just hold on. We'll clear it up. Now, so four things I want to point out from this passage in Hebrews, right? Four phrases I want, to, I want to highlight. Number one, it says he learned obedience. What are we talking about? Was he disobedient before? No. Jesus has been in the school of obedience his whole life. And as we've seen every step along the way, he's listened and followed, right? We saw it in the five passages. But this is his final test. This would be like a, a man in training to be a Navy SEAL. He's gone through the entire course. He's passed every test, but there's one final test that you have to go through to become a Navy SEAL. This is your last challenge, and you have to pass it. This was Jesus. This was his last lesson in the school of obedience. And to save us, he had to pass it. It was his final exam. Number two, it said he was made perfect. What do you mean? He wasn't perfect. He had failures. He had fault. No, no, no. The Bible is really clear. He was tempted in all ways as we are, but without sin. He's a blameless uh, lamb of God, right? So, no. In the Greek, the word uh, here for perfect can be translated perfect. It can also be translated 
mature. And what it's saying is that there's a difference between a 12-year-old Jesus at the temple learning about the word from the religious leaders, going home, being obedient to his parents, growing in favor with God and man. There's a difference between a, 12, a perfect 12-year-old and a perfect 33-year-old. That the lessons of obedience had continued. He had passed each one, but this was the final one if he was going to be mature and perfect. The third statement is that he's the source of eternal salvation. He says that he, what, what the writer says is he had to obey in order to become the source of eternal salvation. Why is obedience so important? Because this is how our, trace, uh, our race went off the rails. We went off the rails because of the disobedience of the one man. And in order to rescue the race, there has to come a new man to head up a new race who models and lives out a life of perfect obedience. In fact, in the book of Romans, the apostle Paul puts it like this. He says, the story of our race, he kind of sums up the whole story in chapter five. The story of our whole race, is it's the tale of two men. The one man who led us into rebellion and the second man who came to lead us back into obedience. In fact, there on your note sheet, in Romans 5, it says, for just as through the disobedience of the one man, referring to Adam, the many, talking about the human race, the many were made sinners, kind of rebels, so through the obedience of the one man, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. There was one who led us into rebellion, there's one who will lead us to righteousness. And Jesus had to pass the ultimate test of obedience if he's going to lead a race into obedience. You can't lead people where you have not gone. And finally, the fourth step is this fascinating statement that he became a source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. There's many ways to describe what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We can talk about who is a follower? Like we believe in Jesus, believers. That's one way to describe it. But what we often miss is in the New Testament, when it talks about believing in Jesus, it's not just describing believing certain things about Jesus. It's believing in Jesus. And if you believe in Jesus, you will listen and follow him. To believe in Jesus is not just to believe certain facts about his death and atonement. To believe in Jesus is to believe in Jesus. And so we listen and we follow. And so the writer of the Hebrews says the reason that he had to go through this test of obedience is so he could become a source of eternal salvation for all who would obey him. And we'll look at that more in just a minute. Now, this leads to a couple big picture principles about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And we're going to wrap this all up at the end with how this fits into pursuing God one-on-one -on -one in the word in this third step of application. Because I, I don't want to go there about application without understanding the epic vision of God for your life and what he's up to in your life. And we set Bible study in that context. If we don't understand where studying the word one-on-one -on -one fits into the larger vision that God has for our life, we will miss it. Or we will truncate it. Or we'll downsize it. Or we will dilute it. 
So uh, let's jump in. So there in your note sheet, pursuing God, the school of obedience. So what we see in Jesus, a couple lessons he, lives for, he, learns, he teaches us, is number one is that obedience is learned. As followers of Jesus, we have to learn to obey. <laughs> have you noticed that? That it's not always natural. It's kind of like when you get a new puppy. Like we're about at that level. Oh, I got the greatest dog. He's just so awesome. I just told him once to go outside. Always goes outside, you know. Yeah, he's never, uh, never gone inside. He's just brilliant dog, you know. He's just amazing. I just say uh, heal, and I told him once. He's right there. He's just amazing. Like, we're more like the dog, right? Like, we have to be trained. So catch this. We were born into the rebel race. What's natural for us as a rebel race is disobedience. Like, you don't have to teach your child, hey, stop telling the truth so much. (laughs) You're just overly honest. It gets you into trouble, you know? Hey, you know, you're so obedient. Could you just mellow it out a little bit, you know? And uh, every once in a while, just give me a little bit of lip, just to prove that you're normal. I mean, you worry me, right? And... uh, like you're 14 now, and it's just like you're always obedient. It's just like it's making me nervous. Like someday you're going to be sitting on a psychologist's couch complaining about me, and I want to understand what's going on. Like that is not the story. Like we're, we're wired. In fact, in Ephesians in chapter 2, it's, Paul calls us the sons of disobedience. We're the rebel race. We have this natural pull. So that's who we are before we come to Jesus. Now, when we come to Jesus, he rescues us. Guess what? The Holy Spirit comes in our life, and he brings with him the DNA of Jesus. What is the DNA of Jesus? This passion to know him, to love him, and to please. And so when you become to Christ, you have this new desire to do what is right and good and true. You have a new desire to love God and love people. It's, some, it's supernatural. God just does that in you. But as we learned in Philippians a couple weeks ago, we have to work out what God is working in. Working in. See, the deepest truth about you is not your your desire for disobedience. The deepest thing about you at the core of your being as a follower of Jesus, the most true thing about you is this heart of obedience. If anyone is in Christ, there's a new creation. You may disobey, but you will not be happy. Right? Like, I'm being really disobedient, but I'm just good with that. If that's you, you're probably not saved. You don't have the DNA of Jesus. And so we have this DNA, but guess what? Obedience doesn't come automatically. We have the desire and the ability, but we have to catch us, learn obedience. And as we learn to listen and follow, we are transformed and we enter into deep and authentic relationship with God and obedience is the only door. There is no other way to be conformed to the image of Jesus than to learn to listen and follow and obey. When you look in the New Testament, this is how the New Testament time and time again defines what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We already talked about Hebrews 5, right? That He became a source of eternal salvation for whom? For those who obey, right? I want to give you three more really quick examples. Romans chapter one. 
uh, Paul's explaining his gospel. And of course, the heart of his gospel, which by the way, the gospel refers to this whole epic vision, not just the Christ died for us part of it. The whole gospel is the whole epic story. And so, but of course, at the heart of that story is us trusting in Christ for our salvation, not in our own works, right? That's at the heart of it. And so uh, Paul's going to be laying out that gospel over the next eight chapters. But in chapter one, often Paul was misunderstood that when you say believe in Jesus, it doesn't matter your works, that that leads to a life of disobedience. He was often misunderstood, criticized like that. He even talks about it in Romans. And so he wants right at the beginning to make sure and clear that you don't misunderstand this. And so he said, he says, uh, we, talking about him, his team as leaders, we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. He says, this is our gospel. This is what Jesus has called me to do, to call people, call rebels into obedience through faith. So let's illustrate it like this. When you become a follower of Jesus, the first step is to lay down your arms and kneel before your king. The very first step is to say, I'm on the wrong side of the spiritual battle. I'm in a rebel army. I have been committing high treason against the king of all creation. And I am coming and I'm begging for mercy. And I'm laying down my arms. There is no forgiveness and pardon for rebels. There is only forgiveness and partners for the penitent. For forgiveness for those who bow the knee and confess their rebellion and lay down their arms and ask for mercy. You see that, for example, in the next passage in 1 Peter. I love this. 1 Peter is talking, writing to Christ's followers, and he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect. We see it again, the chosen ones. Those who have been chosen. And look, but notice what we're chosen. Remember what in, in Romans 8, it said that we have been, God who foreknew, uh, knew us before time, he predestined us, he called us to be conformed to the image. Do you remember that? This is Peter's way of saying the same thing. He says, uh, you have been chosen, but what have we been chosen for? To be what? Obedient to Jesus Christ. The very first thing, you've been chosen to be obedient to Jesus. You've been chosen to be set free from your rebellion. You've been chosen the darkness would be shattered. You be, you've been chosen to be set free from your sin and self-destruction that's holding you back. You've been chosen to be obedient to Jesus. And then he goes on. But not just to be obedient. You've chosen to be obedient and to be sprinkled with his blood, which is Old Testament imagery of sacrifice for, for forgiveness. So when a man or woman comes to Jesus, we're chosen for two things, the flip side of the same coin. We're chosen for obedience and we're chosen for forgiveness. Not one or the other, both and. Look at the third passage, 2 Corinthians 5. Paul says, he died for all, right? So just think in your mind, what would you say? Why did Jesus die? You know, so here's, here's Paul's answer. He died for all that those who live should no longer what? Live for themselves, but instead, we're gonna live for him who died for them and was raised again. Who does that sound like? It sounds like Jesus. 
It sounds like Jesus. Who did Jesus live for? He did not live for himself. He lived for his father. We saw that five times. So Jesus comes and dies for us so we can be transformed and we can be like him. He dies for us so we can live for him, which like an eagle now moving into the environment we were created, we can fly. We were created to live in the presence. We were created to live in partnership with God. We were created to pursue and to run after him. We were created to be like Jesus. We will never be satisfied. We will always be empty. We will never find peace while we're living for ourselves. We were created for God, and Jesus has come to restore the image of God in our life. And when a man or woman comes to Jesus, we bow the knee. We say, you are my king. I live for you. I want to know you. I want to love you. I want to please you as the top priority, the highest passion, the deepest value in my life. And there and there alone, we come alive. Now, this leads to the second lesson then, that the harder the lesson, the greater the growth. Now, in school, you know this, right? That there are some classes that are easier than others. There are some topics that are easier than others. And and in the spiritual life, as we enter into the school of obedience with Jesus, and we learn to listen and follow, and we experience transformation and growth and a relationship with God, that there are some lessons that are easy. There are some times when you're, you're reading the word and uh, the Holy Spirit illumines it to you and applies it to you and it makes so much sense to you and you say yes and, and, and you say yes or I see that and it, maybe there's a little bit of cost but, but it's not that big and it's just you, it's, it's so obvious sense. It's, it's what I would call an easy lesson in the school of obedience. We've all had those. Uh, and then there's some other days <laughs> where it is a hard obedience where you feel like you're on your face before God. God, I can't do this. I, I can't forgive that person after what they did to me. God, I've got same-sex attraction. I, I don't know if I can do this. You're, you're calling me to surrender my life to you and, and to honor you with my body, and I don't know if I'm strong enough to do that. God, you've, you've blessed me so much in, in my financial life, and I've come to you now, and I sense you're asking for everything, that, that when you bought me, you bought my stuff. And, and, and I, I don't know if I can do that. I've worked so hard for this. I'm afraid of what you'll do if I trust you with it. I'm afraid you'll have me give it all away. I don't know if I can. You know, you know what I'm talking about? There are moments in our life of hard obedience where it feels like to follow Jesus in this, this area. Like, like Jesus, I'm, I'm 34 years old. I'm a single woman. I, I've been dating this guy for three years. I know he's not a believer, but he's a good guy. And I know what your word says, but I'm afraid my, 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 my biological clock is ticking and I'm afraid, God, and I, I, I don't know if I can trust. We all go through times like this. We go through times where it feels like to follow Jesus is gonna take us to our face sweating bullets, where we feel like this is a, a death that's too deep for us to die, where we feel like it costs too much. But can I tell you something? Our whole spiritual destiny turns and pivots on these moments. It's what we do, just like Jesus. He had to pass that test to become a source of eternal. And you have to pass this test for you to move in the future that God has for you. 
There is no other way. Do you know how many Christ followers get stalled out in their faith and are living boring Christian lives? Because they came to a point of great cost and they said no. And like the nation of Israel, they would not go in the promised land because there were giants in the land. And so they've spent their whole life wandering in the wilderness because they would not trust in the goodness of God. They didn't trust that God loved them, that God's smarter, that he knew better. And so he said, no, I can't go. And so we spend our life in the wilderness. Now, let's talk about how this applies, just real quickly. Let's talk about how this applies to spending time with God one-on-one. What I want you to catch as we put this whole epic vision together, the model of Jesus, where we're going, our destiny. What I want you to say, when you meet with Jesus one-on-one to spend time with him and you read his word and the Holy Spirit, the whole purpose is to carry out his epic vision for your life, that you'll be transformed to become like Jesus. And there are moments where Jesus, in that time, will lay out before you lessons of obedience in the school of obedience. Sometimes easy, sometimes hard. But here's the thing, if we don't respond to what the Holy Spirit shows us, it would be better not to read the word at all. Because when you read the word over, uh, and over time, you read the word and you're consistently, and you do not listen and follow, and you resist, you know what happens? You learn more about the word, but less about the one who wrote the word. And what happens over time is you get prouder and prouder because you know the Bible so well. As 1 Corinthians says, knowledge puffs up, but you don't know the one who wrote the Bible. And what happens over time, you become more and more like a Pharisee. You know the Bible like the back of your hand, but you are no closer to Jesus than a loaf of bread. And what happens is you end up being on the wrong side of the cross. Embracing the word, you crucify the king. This is why the critical component of our growth is always to listen and follow. And when a man or woman gets serious with God, the word begins to come alive because God will speak to those who will listen. And this is why the word so many times is so boring to so many is because they're not hearing the voice of God in the words of scripture because long ago they stopped listening about, we'll do the easy obedience. We won't do the tough one. The deeper the death, the greater the resurrection. The harder the obedience, the greater the growth. Let's pray. Father, we are here, we, we watch you, Jesus, being on your face in the ground. God, it's just the price you paid and yet the way you paved. It's like you've shown us how this works, that there are times in our life where we have to, to go to our deeper will. We have to listen and follow. We have to surrender, not because it will lead to death, but because death is the door that leads to life. As in Hebrews, it's for the joy set before you, you endured the cross. You trusted your father. You knew he loved you. You knew it would be worth it. And, and Lord, with our lives, we want to do the same. So Lord, as we enter in this time of communion now, as we come before you, we want to reflect on you and your sacrifice and the price you paid to become the source of eternal salvation. 
I want to thank you as we take the bread and the cup, but Lord, we also want to imitate you, knowing that you became a source of eternal salvation for those who would obey you. So as we sing this song, or this song of surrender, when you speak to us, and if there's anything in our life, big obedience or small, that we've been putting off or not even aware of, we pray you'd speak to us and give us the grace to listen and to follow and to trust you that every death leads to a greater resurrection. You wouldn't ask for it otherwise. We pray you'd meet us now in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand with me? As we, we go into a time of communion around the room, our tables, the elements on that. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is for you. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus and not ready to be one yet, then I'd encourage you just to take this time for a flack, to think, maybe even to talk to God. But this is really a symbol of our life, death, and resurrection with Jesus. And you want to save that when you become a follower. If you're here today and you're not yet a follower, but you're ready to bow your knee to King Jesus and ask him to forgive you for your rebellion and give you your life and to transform your life, you could be part of this epic vision. No better way than to go to the communion table and just say, Jesus, would you come into my life? And to receive the elements is a sign of that. And so we're going to go now. We're going to be singing this beautiful song that always reminds me of Gethsemane, of my surrender. So may that be our prayer as we move now to the tables.